Well, it's good to be back today. When I went out to California this uh, last week, I took the microphone with me, which was a great benefit. Now, for those of you who are wondering this morning, I'm going to get a little education in paraphernalia. While I was out in California, they uh, we had our first graduating class with uh, those who have been coming to the WHW conference. For those of you who may not know, uh, th- two years ago, uh, we worked out a deal with Faith Evangelical Seminary for uh, those who are coming to WHW Conference, to the Pastoral Conference, that on the basis of the work that they do during that conference, they can get a level of co- uh, credit plus additional classroom work and correspondence work. They can earn a master's degree. So this year we had our first graduating class, and that class included seven graduates for a master's degree, and then I had completed my uh, doctoral dissertation last spring, and so I was the uh, only uh, doctoral candidate that graduated. Now, when you graduate at that level, as opposed to lower levels, you, uh, you get certain regalia, that's what it's properly referred to, a robe and cap. And I didn't wear the cap this morning. But this is like, for those of you who have a military background, this is comparable. Wearing the robe is comparable to a mess dress uniform. This is, uh, the, the reason it has the three chevrons on the sleeve is to represent a bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree. And the color red on the robe signifies theology. So that is its purpose and function. And, of course, there's a hood that is attached that hangs off the back, which is related to uh, the Ph.D. or doctoral degree. So, anyhow, that's why I'm wearing that this morning is because I thought you all would want to share in the excitement from last week when I uh, received my doctoral degree. And uh, I'm not going to be wearing this on a regular basis. But it is something to, to wear during, you know, formal occasions such as a wedding and other special ecclesiastical occasions such as ordination ceremonies and things of, of that nature. But the conference went well. It was uh, well attended. I'm not sure what the numbers were. I know we had, pretty sure we had well over a thousand in attendance at the conference. And I was very pleased this time to hear a report from a number of people who consistently listen to uh, the messages over the Internet. That has encouraged Bryce to be very diligent and get cranking those things out there now on a timely basis. Uh, heard from a number of people that they were, they were listening on the Internet, that they were uh, a number of pastors were ordering tapes. Also, uh, we uh, heard from, I heard from, some, I would say 20 or 25 different people came up to me and made comments about the fact that they were using the spiritual warfare book as a curriculum guide, or they were basically studying it in a Sunday school class. So the uh, ministry of Preston City Bible Church is extending far beyond the boundaries of New London County. And for that, we are grateful to the Lord that he is using that. So without any further development, let's go ahead and begin to prepare and For our study of God's Word this morning, we'll take a few moments of silent prayer to use uh, 1 John 1-9 if 
necessary. Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And since we need to be operating under the filling ministry and teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit when we take in His Word, and that part of that ministry is related to worship and the study of God's Word is the highest form of worship, we always take time to have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin. So let's bow our heads together and I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity in this nation to gather together this morning to worship you through the study of your word, that we have the freedom to study, the freedom to apply, the freedom to live our spiritual lives in this nation. Father, we continue to pray for the national leadership, for our president, for those in in Congress, for military leaders, those who are on the cabinet, who are uh, and have important decisions in influencing the president, guiding and and counseling him, we pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would make the proper information available, that we might be able to make decisions from a position of strength. Father, we continue to pray for this church, for its outreach. We thank you for the way that you are using it, and we continue to pray that people who are positive to your word will find their way to a, to this ministry, that they may learn the word and have their understanding of the word solidified and that they might advance to spiritual maturity. We pray now as we study your word this morning that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we began our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we just got a part way, and since it's been a couple of weeks, I thought we better review a little bit to make sure we understand what is going on. Starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, we have a new section to this epistle. Up to this point, Paul has been rebuking and correcting some basic problems in Corinth. He has been especially dealing with the fact that they're operating on arrogance, and that continues to be seen throughout the rest of this epistle. But in the first six chapters, their arrogance is specifically related to various divisions that are caused. They're operating on human viewpoint. Now, this is the basic problem that underlies the rest of the epistle as well. That's why those first six chapters really form the foundation for the epistle. We have a problem of arrogance, and we have a problem of human viewpoint thinking, and that problem plagues every believer in every church down through the history of Christianity in the church age. And one of the most difficult things for many of us to deal with is a lot of cherished notions, cherished ideas that are passed down from from parent to child, uh, from one generation to the next, ideas that are picked up from uh, beloved teachers and instructors and friends as we grow up and ideas that we think make a tremendous amount of sense and, and form sort of a, uh, a foundation of what we frequently refer to as common sense. And this enters into our, these things enter into our soul many times at a, at a young age. They're reinforced again and again through uh, family teaching and through cultural uh, norms and standards. And yet frequently what happens is that these ideas are contrary 
to teachings in the Word of God. They may be similar at some points. There may be areas of overlap, areas of similarity, but we have to be very careful to analyze what we do, how we conduct especially our family lives in light of the principles of the Word of God and not yield to the pressure of human viewpoint. One way Satan continuously assaults a nation is through an assault on the institutions of family, marriage, and personal responsibility. Those first three divine institutions are the foundation for any solid or sound government operation and the health of a nation, which, and those two are the fourth and fifth divine institutions. And so we see this same problem in Corinth. They ha- are having some problems in understanding the role, specifically the role of sex in marriage, and they are having problems understanding uh, uh, whether or not to get married, whether to stay single, what happens when you are widowed, what happens when you're divor- divorced. And so they are asking Paul for clarification on these questions. And as we get into this chapter, it becomes clear that the reason that these problems are here is because they're still operating on a g- Greek cultural concept of marriage. And just as the Greeks in the ancient world had their concept of marriage and the role of the husband and the role of the wife and how they related to each other and the role that sex played in a marriage, the same thing is true in 21st century America. You have been brought up in a uh, culture, whatever your culture was, whether it was uh, here, whether it was overseas, whether it has to do with some uh, ethnic group in, in this country, you have were taught and trained in your ideas of of marriage and family and the role of a husband and a wife based probably on a lot of cultural ideas. If you grew up in a uh, Bible-believing church, then you picked up some biblical truth along the way. But if uh, I were to analyze each one of you and take the time to do that, I would probably be able to show that you have a lot of human viewpoint in your concepts related to marriage. And so what we have to do, if we're going to have successful marriages, I mean Christian marriages, marriages that follow the principles of Scripture and marriages that glorify God and build strong, healthy families, then we have to have the courage and the objectivity and the humility to sit down and evaluate what the Scripture teaches about the role of husbands and wives, uh, the role of parents, uh, the role that sex plays in a marriage, and all of these factors. So as we go through this chapter, I want to develop the principles as we go as we go through it. And then when we get to the end of the chapter, we'll take probably a lesson or two just to pull things together and look at other areas of Scripture that talk about the principles of love, sex, uh, marriage, and divorce, just so we can have a nice uh, series dealing with this. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, as I stated last time, is not Paul's primary discourse on on marriage. His primary discourse on marriage is in Ephesians chapter 5. Here he is simply as answering some specific questions that have been raised by the Corinthians related to uh, issues that they faced in their particular uh, culture. We see a shift in topic starting in verse 1 where you have uh, translated in your uh, English the phrase now concerning. This is a 
key phrase in the Greek, and it translates the phrase peri day, which indicates that there is a new topic. And that suggests to us, and we find this in, in uh, six more times in this passage, or, or four more times in this, in this epistle, rather, that uh, Paul changes the subject, and this indicates where he's addressing a new question. We have this phrase in uh, five times, actually, in the epistle. The first time is in 7.1. The second time is in 7.25. The third time is in 8.1. And the fourth time is in 12.1. So from chapter 7 through chapter 15, Paul is now going to be answering questions and dealing with specific topics and specific problem areas in the church. Now, what's helpful for the, for us is that these are problems that have endured throughout the church age. There's nothing unique to the problems in Corinth. Last time we saw that this first verse includes a phrase that is not Paul's opinion, although it, it really depends on how you how you punctuate the um, the passage. If you look at it, I have repunctuated the verse on the screen. It should read, did we, we lost it? Oh, we don't have it up there to begin with. There we go. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Now if you look at an older King James Version, and perhaps uh, in a New American Standard Version, it looks as if the phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, is a phrase that perhaps comes from Paul's own lips or is a part of biblical teaching. However, most scholars agree from the context and evaluation of the syntax and study of of the uh, passage that this is a phrase that was sort of a slogan representing the the thinking in Corinth. This is the, the we'll run into this several times as we go through this epistle that Paul is basically quoting back to the people uh, what they had said to him. And their slogan is that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, an emphasis on celibacy. The idea of not touching a woman is a euphemism for sexual relations. It derives from the aorist active infinitive of the verb hopto, which by this time in the development of language simply means to touch. It's used that way several times in Scripture. Uh, originally, when, as the word was used in classical Greek some five centuries earlier. It meant to ignite, to kindle, to set ablaze, to start a fire, or to light a lamp. And therefore, it was uh, came to be used as a euphemism for igniting or kindling lust. It, uh, but it was primarily used in the New Testament in a number of different contexts just for simple touch. It's used of, of the woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years who touched Jesus' cloak. It's used for Jesus touching the eyes of the blind and they were, they were healed. It's, it's used of, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, embracing, hugging Jesus and not wanting to let go after, uh, the resurrection in John 20. Verse 17, but the word also is used in a more uh, technical sense, in an idiom for sexual intimacy, as we have here in this passage. So this was their slogan, and this was the idea that somehow celibacy was spiritually superior to uh, being sexually active in marriage. And the issue here is in marriage. It's not talking about 
sex outside of marriage. The problem that ha- they had because of the Greek culture and Greek cultural background was the idea that somehow the body was uh, less significant than the spirit or the soul, that the material flesh was was inherently evil, and therefore sexual activity really wasn't as good as just a pure mental uh, relationship. And therefore the idea developed in the culture that somehow it was better to be celibate. Now, uh, part of that derived from a reaction in the culture to the extreme licentiousness in Greece. And you always have that problem in any culture where you have reaction setting in because you see uh, sexual uh, immorality develop, that, that what happens in the church is an overreaction in the opposite direction. And this is probably the most extreme form where they were emphasizing celibacy inside the marriage. So Paul is writing to correct that. That's the idea that they had. And he says in verse 2, Nevertheless, or in the New American Standard it translates it but, and that's a more correct translation. You have a uh, de adversative at the beginning. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Now the term immoralities there refers to the primarily the sexual immorality that took place in the worship of the various fertility religions in Corinth. This was very popular. You had uh, temple prostitutes who were very active. So it was, if you were not having sexual relations inside a marriage, it was very easy for someone to get sexual satisfaction anywhere in town because it was so prevalent. And Paul is correcting this and stating that if you get involved in this celibacy the idea that was being promoted, that that was just going to eventually put an undue amount of sexual pressure on a marriage and create a number of other problems. So he says that because of sexual immorality, and we might even paraphrase it, because of the easy availability of sex outside of marriage, let each man have his own wife, and that is the command, and each woman is to have her own husband. In other words, there was to be sexual relations here. This, again, is a euphemism for sex, the uh, verb echo to have, that they were to have sex and keep it within the marriage, and this was not a violation of any biblical principle. I stopped at that point, and we began some introductory thoughts on uh, marriage and sex in marriage. And we only got through the first four points, so I want to review and enhance what we studied last time and then move on to finish uh, that discourse. First point we saw was that marriage is a divine institution established by God for the stability and perpetuation of the human race. Now, that's the basic definition of any of the divine institutions, that it is established by God for the stability and perpetuation of the human race. Now, the first three divine institutions were all established before the fall. That means, um, and the provision was made before the fall. The family didn't start, of course, till after the fall, but the provision was made prior to the fall, as we will see. So these three institutions are established before sin ever enters into human history. Therefore, they're not designed as a corrective for sin. They're not designed for some sort of corrective in a fallen environment. They are designed for operation under the an ideal environment. But now that we live in a post-fall environment, we know that every institution has been marred and distorted and warped because of sin. So the only way to work our way out of those problems is first through salvation and second through spiritual growth. Now let's review the five divine institutions. 
Remember, there are five divine institutions. You were probably taught that there were four, but I make a distinction in the fifth divine institution. The first divine institution is human responsibility. Human responsibility. When God placed Adam and Esha in the garden, he said, you will... You can eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat. So there is a prohibition there indicating that they are personally responsible for their decision. Furthermore, there was a penalty assessed, and that was that in the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. So that emphasizes the principle of human responsibility and accountability to God for the decisions that they make. So in human responsibility, there is also an authority structure, and the authority is God. Then God established marriage. He created the woman from the rib of the man, and in marriage there is an authority, and that is the husband, is the authority, the final authority in the marriage, and therefore he is held accountable for not only the physical operation of the marriage in terms of uh, being the provider, but he is also accountable and will be held accountable for the spiritual welfare of the family. It is the husband who is the spiritual leader in the home. It is not the wife. Therefore, when children enter into the family, it is the husband's responsibility to train the children and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, according to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. It is the role of the husband, not the wife. That doesn't mean, husbands, that you can say, well, I've just delegated that responsibility. Uh, not unless you want to start wearing a dress, man. You know, you can't delegate certain responsibility. That is your job to make sure that that uh, that you teach that. See, the problem that we have in America is so many men throughout the centuries have abdicated responsibility in this area that, that the church in America has basically been feminized, not just in America but around the world. If you go to almost any church anywhere in the world, the majority of people in attendance are women and not men. And at, in some churches it's overwhelmingly women instead of men, because men just do not see its relevance, and that's probably because men have a tendency to react to female leadership. And so when you have a church that, due to lack of male involvement, starts elevating women to positions of authority in Sunday school or over this group or over that group, elevating them to the position of deacons, and now we have the uh, situation in many churches where they're elevating women to the position of pastorate, Men don't want to get involved. It is a natural tendency for men to avoid working under women and being under female leadership, and that goes back to the fall. So when you have a home structure where the woman is the spiritual leader, you will be teaching what one four-year-old said to me one time, or said to his mother one time. His mother was getting ready to take him to church, and this was in my first pastor, and his mother came up to me and said that her son... Uh, asked her, why doesn't daddy go to church? Isn't church just for women? And that's exactly what you're going to communicate, men, if you are not the spiritual leader in the home. You will be contributing to the role reversal in marriage and family and the breakdown of society when you abdicate your role as the spiritual leader in the home. The third divine institution is family. And in the family, the authority is in the parents. 
The authority resides in the parents. They are the leaders in the home. The home environment is not a, a democracy. You do not make decisions based upon uh, sitting around and voting. Now, there may be some decisions you make that way, but but uh, not all decisions. You set the course. Parents lead. See, the flip side of authority is leadership. See, authority without an understanding of leadership usually deteriorates into just tyranny. And we're not talking about tyranny, and there's such a problem with authority in this nation that when many people hear you talk about authority, the first thing that comes in their mind is a concept that really isn't authority. It's tyranny. It's tyranny. And you can't have any level of freedom under tyranny, and one of the reasons you have tyranny is because of arrogance and the sin nature and people who do not understand the proper role and function of authority. But in the family, the parents are the authority, and they are the ones who direct the children until the children reach an age when they can support themselves outside of the home. The fourth divine institution is government. Now, government is not established until the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 and following. It is not until God delegates the responsibility to the human race to take human life when someone has committed murder. It is the function of capital punishment and the delegation of capital punishment as the most extreme the, the most serious of all forms of, of decision-making that is the sign of, the, of human government. Now, at the time of, the, of Noah's flood, there are no nations. At the time that that covenant was established, all you had was Noah and his, uh, his wife and their three children and their wives. It is not until you get into Genesis chapter 11 and the rebellion at the Tower of Babel that you have... It is not until you get to the Tower of Babel when God separates the languages that you have people dividing up into people groups, and that's when you have the establishment of nations. In those events, I mean the events between Genesis 9-6 and the Tower of Babel, uh, cover at least some two or three hundred years. So since you have a two hundred or three hundred year gap, between the authorization to exercise governing responsibility and judicial authority and the establishment of nations, you can't establish both of them on the same principle. 200 years separate them. So they are two distinct divine institutions. So the fourth divine institution is human government, and the fifth divine institution is nations. God has established a distinction in nations and these nations are set up in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 11. In fact, if you want to understand the operation of human history and nations in human history, you almost have to understand uh, the distinctions in Genesis 11 in order to properly interpret many subsequent passages in Scripture that have to do with, with prophecy because God, throughout his word, tends to refer to people groups in terms of their progenitors as mentioned in Genesis chapter 11. So these are the five divine institutions, and they are designed for the stability and perpetuation of the human race. When they break down, then stability and security break down. And usually they break down in order. The first thing to go is human responsibility, and we've seen that in our own nation. Once you get a nation to the point where they they start limit or 
limiting human accountability and not holding people responsible for their bad decisions or not letting people feel or experience the consequences of their own bad decisions, then the that, then the concept of human responsibility breaks down. People view themselves as victims, and they begin to shift responsibility and to blame somebody else. You saw that in the Garden of Eden. That's one one of the first responses of the sin nature is it's to blame somebody else. Then once a responsibility begins to break down, it's going to impact any area of relationship. It will automatically start breaking down marriage when husbands and wives do not recognize their individual responsibilities within a marriage, then that marriage will begin to break down. Furthermore, once you start seeing a breakdown in the the roles of the husband and the wife, it's going to impact the family. It's going to impact their understanding of parental responsibility. Parental responsibility will go the way of individual responsibility. And the next thing you know, you're raising children who have no concept of discipline, no concept of who they are, their role under God. And that will pass on to the next generation. And it doesn't take too many generations before the, uh, it begins to affect government and then national fragmentation. So these are all related to each other. Now that's just point one. Point two was that marriage is established before the fall, thus indicating that it is God's design for the human race and it's not affected by sin. God did not create marriage in order to solve some problems, some social problems that would come into hum- the human race because of sin. Marriage is designed for the human race before sin ever entered into the human race. So we have to realize from this that marriage then is not a problem-solving device. Now, some of you that are single need to realize that, that marriage is not a problem-solving device. I don't care if the problem's loneliness. I don't care if the problem is uh, sexual pressure. I don't care if the problem is uh, economic. Marriage is not a problem-solving device. The, the reality is that because when you get married, you become yoked to someone else's sin nature, that often marriage, when the two people are not operating on Bible doctrine, what happens is you have more problems than if you're single. That's why so many married people look at single people as, and the single condition as a, as a place of happiness. If, oh, if I just hadn't gotten married, then I would be happy living by myself. And so many single people, though, think of marriage as a problem-solving device, and they just want to get married to solve the problems in their life. But you see, marriage is not related to problem-solving at all. It is God's plan for the human race to fulfill the original uh, divine uh, creation mandate, and that is to rule over the earth. And so marriage has a function and a purpose, but it is not related to solving personal problems. It's not related to solving any kind of problem. It's related to fulfilling the, the plan of God. So marriage without that foundation is going to be on a bumpy road. That's why um, the marriage that unbelievers have, even though the divine institution is for both believer and unbeliever, the marriage that unbelievers have is never going to be the same as the kind of marriage two mature believers can have. But then that brings us to another area, and that is 
the Christian institution of marriage. See, according to Ephesians chapter 5, there's a higher level of expectation on two believers who are in marriage. So you move from the divine institution of marriage, which is for believer and unbeliever alike, and the Christian institution of marriage, which has a higher standard uh, for believers. But the second point is simply to recognize that marriage is uh, God's design for the human race unaffected by sin. And no matter how perfectly two people might be matched after the fall, whenever one or the other of them is operating on the sin nature, problems will develop. It doesn't matter how much you love the other person. It doesn't matter how perfectly matched they are for you. You have to realize that you're married to another sinner, and there are going to be times in their life, hopefully limited times, but there are going to be times in their life when they go into carnality, they go into spiritual rebellion, when they are struggling with problems in their own spiritual life and their own resistance to the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is that you're going to feel it in terms of your own marriage. And if that is a prolonged period of time, then it will have it will be a difficult time, and that's just one of the tests that God is going to be taking you through in your sanctifying process. Now, that doesn't uh, uh, ignore the fact that there are going, there can be, when one believer is operating in carnality and in reversionism, some serious sins that may, in fact, be so serious that they make the continuation of the marriage. Uh, impossible, but we'll cover that, those issues under the category of, of divorce when we get there. But you have to realize that one of the ways God is going to be sanctifying you, one of the ways God is going to be testing you in terms of your spiritual growth is in relationship to that other person you live with that is a sinner. Same thing's going to happen when you start having little sinners. They're going to be a, that's going to be a whole new realm of testing for you once you start having, having kids. That's going to be a whole new realm because one of the categories of testing that God uses to produce, to give us opportunities to trust Him and to apply doctrine is the realm of people testing. And that will include your, your spouse and your children as well as your parents. So as long as we're involved in relationship, and remember, man is created in such a way that he is designed for relationship. No person is an island. You don't just escape and go live by yourself. That is uh, an escape from reality. Third point, marriage is related then to the concept of the image of God. This is where we have to start to understand the role of men and women and the function of marriage. Marriage is related to the concept of the image of God. Genesis 1.26 tells us that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. So both men and women are equally image bearers. That means that, that in terms of their basic being as a person, Men and women are equal before God. They are, they both partake of the same image. That means that they, that is your foundation for saying men and women are equal. There's no basis for thinking that men are inherently superior to women or women are inherently superior to men. Now you get both examples in, in fallen cultures because of the distortion that's produced by the sin nature and the curse that was pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. But in, in 
the pre-fall condition, both equally possess the image of God, and after the fall, that image is equally distorted and warped. Now, once we understand the image of God factor, it helps us to realize that there is no innate superiority of one sex over the other. But we have to understand that there are role distinctions, that each was designed separately. There is a male there are certain trends in the male soul and certain trends in the female soul. There are certain strengths and weaknesses in each soul. The man is designed to be the leader and the woman is designed to be a responder. Now what happens is that's not always true. You look around and you say, well, I know a man and well, the last thing in the world he is is any kind of a leader. And I know a woman and the last thing she is is any kind of, of, of responder. She's, she's, uh, she, in fact, she's a leader. We all know people like that, but see, we live after the fall, and those manifestations, those distor- those are all distortions that are the result of the sin nature. And so we are going to have problems in our relationships, in marriage, because of those distortions. And they're going to be manifested in many different ways due to the sin natures of the individuals involved and due to bad decisions or sinful decisions that they have made during the process of their development. But you have to start with what man was originally designed to be, and that is the male as the leader and the woman as the responder. Third thing we have to understand in this, in, under this concept is the sin nature. We have to understand the image of God factor means that, ma- that male and female are equal. The role factor tells us that there are different strengths and weaknesses, and each is designed to fulfill the ultimate function in, in, in slightly different ways. And the sin nature factor helps us realize that those strengths and weaknesses are now warped and distorted because of human rebellion, arrogance, and lust. Fourth point. Sexual enjoyment was part of marriage from the inception before there was a fall. See, you get into some uh, some religious organizations, and they actually teach, that because they've operated on some sort of allegorical methodology that goes all the way back to origin in the 3rd century A.D., where uh, Origen and others were highly influenced by the Neoplatonism of the day. They still had this idea that the physical body is not that significant, it's evil, and sex really isn't good. I mean, those problems endured all the way through the Middle Ages. That's why you have the whole concept of a celibate priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church. It comes right out of the influence of of, uh, Platonism and Neoplatonism, on the early church. So we're still plagued with the same basic uh, philosophical human viewpoint problems uh, that, that, the, uh, that the early church was plagued with. Now what we discover is that, uh, that sex was there from the beginning. Now the point I was making on allegory is in some, some church groups they actually teach that eating the fruit was not, uh, was not eating a literal piece of fruit. It, that's just a euphemism for having sex. See, if you take that position, then sex becomes inherently evil. Yet, that is the view that is taught uh, in some very large denominations throughout the world. But that is not what the Scripture teaches, and it's based on a completely fallacious view, or view of interpretation and understanding Scripture. Now, Genesis 2.24 I want to review this again. This is a crucial passage that is 
not understood and frequently not applied in the Scriptures. First of all, we have to understand that Genesis 2.24 is in a context that just prior to this, God brought all the animals, male and female, to Adam to be named so that Adam would discover that there was no one comparable to him. There wasn't a counterpart for him, that there was a male and female sheep, there was a male and female uh, uh, cow or or uh, uh, the male and female giraffe, male and female lion. Everything had a counterpart, but there's no counterpart for Adam. And once he realized his need, then God supplies that need. Now, all of that happened on the sixth day of creation. And after going through that and, and describing the creation of the woman who came from the side of man, and Adam spoke in Genesis 2.23, where he says that I will call her Isha because she came out of man, Ish being the Hebrew word for man, Isha is her name prior to the fall. And then we have the statement in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a statement by Moses as he is writing this for the Jews on the plains of Moab before they go into the land. He is explaining a point of application. This happens again and again in the book of Genesis that he makes this point, makes certain applications as, as a basis or from the basis of what took place during creation. So the point here is that for this reason, because God designed the family to be centered around a, a man and a woman, not around grandparents, not around extended family, but around the husband and the wife, that what happens at marriage is that a new family unit is being created. And that means that at that point, there's application here for parents and for children. The application for parents is once your kids get married, you have no level of expectation on them whatsoever for the rest of their life. Now, hopefully they won't turn their back on you and go off and never talk to you again. But they are totally within their rights to do so because of this commandment. They are to leave father and mother. That means they cut the physical ties, they cut the financial ties, they cut the emotional ties, they cut the social ties. All that is gone. Now, there's various cultures, there's various ethnic groups who have all kinds of traditions and ideas about family that run counter to this. And they emphasize the extended family. And that is nothing more than raw human viewpoint paganism. And if you as a parent continue to have any kind of pressure on your children that they need to call you a certain amount of times during the week, that they need to invite you, uh, that, that they need to come over for dinner, they need to invite you over, that they need to include you in their life, then on the basis of this passage, uh, I have to tell you that you are completely wrong and you are setting your children up for failure. And children, if you keep running back to your parents when you get after you're married with any kind of problem, now if if your husband or wife is beating you or or uh, engaged in other kinds of criminal activity, that's a different issue. But I'm talking about the, all the problems that every young couple goes through in terms of uh, balancing the checkbook, handling their financial problems, figuring out how they're going to raise their children, what their disciplinary procedures are going to be. All of those conflicts that enter into to most marriages as they're in their early stages, you don't take that home to your parents. 
Uh, one of the worst things that I ever heard a father say to his daughter before she got married was that, well, if anything goes wrong, you can always come home. Now, if you want to be a real jerk as a father, then you say something like that because what you're going to do is you're going to create a, a trap door in the marriage so that that daughter can escape whenever anything gets difficult. When the hardest thing in the world, I understand, is for uh, fathers to let their daughters go and sometimes for mothers to let their sons go. But this verse teaches that uh, parents need to let the children go. The worst thing you can possibly do is stay involved. In fact, the best thing that some of you can do is to move about 500 miles away from your parents the day after you get married. And uh, that will solve a tremendous number of problems and probably make your future marriage successful and may make all the difference in the world. It's just amazing that some of the stories that I've heard over the years about the involvement of in-laws. And it happens in overt ways, and it happens in extremely subtle ways. The mani- Never underestimate the manipulative power of an in-law or your own parents, for that matter. Now, Genesis 2.24 says that, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the fact that it mentions the man is leaving his father and mother does not mean that the woman doesn't either, because the view is that they both leave and they establish the, their own uh, family independent of the parents. Now, these ideas of extended families, and you get into some cultures in Africa, you get into, into certain Greek cultures, Italian family structures, and several other uh, Oriental Asian families where you have this extended family where you have a matriarch or patriarch who decides everything for all the generations. Well, you just have to, sometimes you have to, in a very nice, in a very gracious manner, figure out some way to tell Everybody else that you're related to that that uh, they need to just butt out. And you have to do it very firmly and very strongly, and you have to put up with the fact that you may face a mother or you may face a father who uh, continues to just absolutely bounce off the walls because you've done that. And that may mean you have to get an unlisted phone number. But if you want success in your marriage and you don't want somebody outside of the family influencing what's going on in your marriage, then you have to take some extreme measures, but you have to decide whether you're going to be influenced by human viewpoint, pagan concepts of family, or whether you're going to be influenced by what the Word of God says. And that's a test. And so that's your decision. Now, in Genesis 2.24, we read, This reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the word dabak there is interpreted in Ephesians 5.31 by the Greek word proskalao. In Ephesians 5.31, we read, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined. So this is the uh, the Holy Spirit's translation of the Hebrew text, and the word proskalao has to do with sexual intimacy. And so the concept of being joined to his wife is, a, is sexual intimacy and that that is part of marriage and was designed to be part of marriage prior to the fall. So that brings us to our fifth point, which is that sexual intimacy is an important element of the marriage union because it celebrates and enhances soul intimacy. 
Sex is designed as a celebration of love between the man and the woman, and the emphasis is on providing pleasure for the other person. It is not on satisfying one's own lust or gratifying one's own desires. Sex is designed for mutual pleasure, and it ultimately is a result of the, I mean, the, the beauty of it is the result of the proper function of the man and woman within marriage in terms of the man's leadership and the woman's response. Now, by that, I don't mean that the man is the one who initiates uh, sexual involvement and the woman doesn't. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the entire framework of the marriage. When things are operating correctly and the man is the one who is uh uh, correctly, legitimately, humbly, graciously exercising his leadership responsibility and the wife is responding, then that soul relationship will be enhanced and will enhance the sexual relationship. Now, I just want to make a side point here because I've run into this question before, that sex was initially designed for pleasure not simply procreation, but procreation was the idea even before the fall. Though man was designed to procreate and to produce children from the very beginning, he did not have children in the garden or before the fall. Now, that's for one of three reasons. Let me give you the three reasons that are usually offered. First of all, he wasn't there long enough. You know, and that's, that's really my view. I just don't think it took him too long to fall. But you can't prove that from Scripture. First of all, the, the idea is that the reason they didn't have children is because they weren't there long enough. The second is that God sovereignly prevented pregnancy until after the fall, and that's possible as well. The text does not indicate that either. That, But God could have given them the command to be fruitful and multiply and then just sovereignly prevented them from being able to uh, have children until they had passed the test. God does that all the time. We're commanded to give, yet there are times in our lives when we don't have anything to give. And that's because God in his sovereignty is taking us through a test of poverty, and during that time he, he is sovereignly preventing us from having the resources to give financially. The third explanation is that they were not able to get pregnant, and the command to be fruitful and multiply was really given only in reference to the post-fall environment. In other words, God in his omniscience knew that uh, they were going to fall, and so the command in Genesis one twenty-eight to be fruitful and multiply didn't have any reference to what would take place in the garden. It just had reference to what would take place after the fall. Now, that option must be rejected for three reasons. First of all, if you look at Genesis one twenty-eight. We read, and God blessed them. This is after the creation of the male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, now this is the commandment. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, in the syntactical structure of the Hebrew, you basically have two grouped commands. The first, And each of these groupings involves synonyms. The first grouping is to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Those are all related. Then there is a second grouping, to subdue and rule. Now, those are synonyms. So you have two, two basic command structures that each include two or three synonyms. But if one is true, both are true. 
Now, if be fruitful and multiply isn't supposed to take place until after the fall, when they've fallen, then that would mean that subduing and ruling in order to be consistent would also have to be a command that was not to be put into place until after the fall. But that doesn't make sense because that is the basic function of their imageness as we have studied. This is the passage that comes right after uh, Genesis 1.27 where we're told that God created them uh, male and, in, in his image, male and female, he created them. So the concept of subduing and ruling over the fish of the sea is part of the function of being in the image of God and man's the, the, the role of the human race over creation. And so being fruitful and multiplying was part of that. So God envisioned that this would actually take place in the perfect environment before the fall. The Furthermore, if the command for man to be fruitful and multiply is only to take place after the fall, then this command would be meaningless nonsense to Adam and the woman prior to the fall. Think about it. God's coming up to them, and and if his view is that, well, you're not going to be able to actually do this until after the fall, then the whole concept of being fruitful and multiplying would be a meaningless concept. They couldn't do it. They did, either they didn't have the equipment to do it or... Uh, they, they, uh, and it also would imply that they only get the equipment to do it as a result of the fall, which means that procreation is part of the sinful environment. It has damaging consequences if you take that particular view. And then third, on the basis of consistency, if the command for the man, for, for mankind to be fruitful and multiply, is only for a post-fall environment, then the command of God to the animals in verse 22, in Genesis 1.22, where he tells the animals to be fruitful and multiply, must also be understood as not applying until after the fall. You've got to be consistent here. Either If you have two commands within four verses of each other, within six verses of each other, to be fruitful and multiply, they have to both be related to the same time period, either before the fall or after the fall. So the only conclusion is that um, uh, you have to go with option A or B, Either man wasn't in the garden long enough to have for, for Esau to get pregnant and to have children, or God sovereignly prevented the pregnancy until after the fall. Now, we know that Seth is not born until Adam is 130 years of age. So they weren't in the garden any more than, I would say, 110 years. Seth is born after Cain murders Abel. So if we just take as an average age about 20, that if Cain murders Abel when he's about 20 years of age, then that means that you've got 110 years between the creation of Adam and the time that Cain kills Abel. So that means that uh, our, our Cain would be born. So if Cain's born about the time that Adam is 110 years of age, that's all the time you have in the garden. So they weren't there for millions and millions of years. You can't get any extended time period in there. The Scripture only allows for a maximum of about 110 years. That's it. Sixth point. What we learned from the previous point is that sex is designed for the enjoyment and the celebration of marriage. Therefore, sexual promiscuity outside of marriage destroys the capacity for love. Now, why is that? 
That is because sex outside of marriage emphasizes self-gratification and personal pleasure over an emphasis on the other person. Sex was not designed to satisfy sex lust, overactive hormones, or an intensified libido. Sex was designed for the celebration of a union between a man and a woman. It is the consequence of a soul rapport, not the cause of a soul rapport. And when you put those in reverse, it is going to have a uh, negative effect on the development of a relationship and capacity for love. Therefore, when you get involved in promiscuity, autoeroticism, or any other sexual perversion, the focus is on personal pleasure, and self-absorption takes control, and it becomes a function of arrogance as opposed to love. And the result is that it will destroy the capacity to love. Seventh point, capacity for love is related to the capacity to give, the opposite of self-centeredness or arrogance. Love involves sacrifice, and the person who is not able to give of himself and to be concerned about someone else and their pleasure is someone who cannot love. In a um, in any relationship, the more self-absorbed someone is, the less able they are to love. Those are mutually exclusive. So be very careful when you single women and men are dating somebody. Be very perceptive about the uh, level of self-absorption in the person you're interested in. The more self-absorbed they are, the less capable they're going to be uh, of loving, and it will destroy their sex life. Point number eight, sexual intimacy and pleasure uh, and maturity in a sex, sexual relationship is directly related to soul intimacy. You have to have soul intimacy and soul rapport first, and then you will develop uh, true sexual intimacy as designed by God, and then that pleasure and the maturity in the sex relationship will be enhanced. But it all starts with a soul relationship. And if a man's soul is designed to operate in one way and a woman's soul is designed to operate in another way, when you start getting into role reversal, then that will directly affect capacity to love, break down the relationship, and destroy sex life. That's what you see happen in so many marriages where the, the woman starts leading. She wants to wear the pants in the family, and then the man reacts and and all kinds of different ways. There's a number of different scenarios that takes place, but it ultimately destroys the marriage. When the husband gets to where he's operating in a tyrannical view of uh, his authority, and rather than a leadership, a grace-oriented leadership role of his authority, the same thing happens. The woman is going to react to his tyranny, and that will destroy uh, their sexual relationship from her viewpoint. And so once you start messing with the role relationships as God intended, then you end up destroying sex. Once you destroy sex, then it just becomes nothing more than uh, uh, each person being involved in sex for their own personal gratification. We have to remember point number nine, that the male is designed to initiate and to lead. This is why in the New Testament it is the man that is commanded to love. 
if you notice, the woman is not commanded to love. She is commanded to respect her husband. Respect is a response term for his leadership. And I always emphasize the concept of leadership over against authority because too many people and too many men, when they hear the word authority, they immediately think of some sort of uh, dictatorial, tyrannical, uh, top-down authority structure, some sort of military concept, and if you get involved in thinking that the wife is there to carry out all your wishes, to sweep the floors and clean the house, and then you will uh, destroy your relationship. It is a mutual relationship. Love involves humility and involvement in the other person's life. It is not something that is self-centered, but love involves sacrifice, men. That means that you have to study and understand your wife and that in many cases you're going to give up many legitimate and many uh, wonderful pleasures that you have simply for the benefit of your wife and for the benefit of the marriage. Now, the problem with that is it runs counter to the general sin nature trend of the fallen uh, male soul. On the other hand, point number 10, the woman is designed to respond. And she is either going to respond to the man's humility and his grace-oriented leadership and love, or she is going to react to his self-centeredness. And in the dynamics of any relationship, you have both of these things going on all the time because at one point, one or the other is operating on the sin nature and the other isn't. And that's where you have to understand in Christian marriage the role and function of forgiveness and the role and function of forgetting. Now, I understand that women have a more difficult time putting things aside and forgetting them than men do. And it's often interesting when I've gotten involved in various uh, marriage counseling things that that 15 years uh, may seem like 15 years to a man and something that happened in the first or second year of marriage when he was 22 or 23 and still immature and dumb that that is still rankling in the wife 15 years later. In fact, I was involved with a situation uh, not long ago with a couple that had been married in over 25 years and she, the thing that's bothering her the whole time is stuff that happened the first year they were married, and she's still bitter over it. So, you know, there has to be the concept of forgiveness. You have to understand forgetting and putting things behind you, and you have to deal with each other in grace because we all fail. Now, the particular failings that you might have to deal with in your marriage may be greater than the failings that someone else has to deal with in their marriage, but the problem-solving devices still apply, and we have to constantly be in that position of humility and willing to, to forgive. Now, those are just some introductory concepts on marriage, and we have to understand that what Paul is describing here is a, is something that runs counter to what was going on in the normal culture. See, the normal culture in, in, in Greece was that the wife just had a, a, a social level not much higher than that of a slave. And what you'll often run into, especially in our modern enlightened era, is you'll run into the feminist interpretation of Paul, that Paul was really a misogynist. He hated women, and he was always down on women. That's why he says the men are to... Uh, and the wives are just supposed to submit to their husbands, etc., etc. But see, if that were true, then Paul wouldn't be able to write what he writes in this chapter. Because basically what he says in this chapter is, uh, husbands, your, your wife's body, you own your wife's body. 
But then he turns around the next verse and say, women, you own your husband's body. There's a mutuality here that is completely foreign to Greek culture, and it's completely foreign to any kind of, of pagan thinking. There is a mutuality in the marriage relationship. It is not just a top-down authority structure. And so we'll come back next time, and we will develop that in our understanding of marriage with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, and we recognize that the only way to have real happiness and real significance in life is is, uh, as we develop and mature as believers. But that starts at the cross, and there's always the opportunity for someone who has come into the assembly to take the opportunity to, to deal with their own eternal destiny. There may be someone here this morning who is unsure or uncertain of their eternal life. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins, and it's only as regenerate believers filled with the Holy Spirit that we can assimilate doctrine, put it into practice, and we can begin to discover and recover what God originally intended in marriage. But the starting point has to be at the cross where we recognize that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all our sins. It's only on the basis of grace orientation and genuine humility that starts at the cross that we can ever have the kind of grace orientation necessary to have real, genuine love inside of a marriage. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, to have the courage to apply them the objectivity to let the mirror of your word uh, reveal to us the faults and flaws in our own human viewpoint thinking and in our own behavior, that we might be able to exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for the divine viewpoint of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.